Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter number 6. Luke chapter number 6. Short little passage today that we're going to cover. It's the calling of the apostles. And of course, we, we understand who the apostles were, right? They were foundational to the church. As a matter of fact, they were so foundational to the church that God memorializes their spiritual significance in the foundation of the New Jerusalem. Whether you believe the New Jerusalem is a literal city or simply it is a, a sign or a type of the church, Revelation 21 says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So forever and ever, they will be memorialized somehow, right? They're foundational to the church in that it is only by believing the apostolic message can sinners be saved. That's the only way. By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of the apostles, can you be saved? The, the apostles, they were, they were first and foremost disciples, weren't they? They were, they were a disciple. A disciple is someone who becomes like his master. Their master, the Lord Jesus Christ, had a message to preach, didn't he? If we haven't learned anything in Luke, hopefully we have learned that Jesus was first and foremost a preacher. And Christ gave them a message to preach. And these 12 men, through preaching that message, changed the world. As we're going to see, Jesus will commission them to make disciples who make disciples. But here's a question that I want to answer today. The question I want to ask and answer is, how does Jesus make disciples? How does he make disciples? This interesting little passage gives us the answer. If you'll stand with me, we'll read uh, verses 12 to 16. Very short reading today. Verse number 12. In these days... He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Lord, we thank you for this short little passage. Uh, my prayer constant this week has been that your Holy Spirit will work in hearts and, and energize us, commit us to making disciples. Lord, that's what we are commissioned to do. That's our main purpose for staying here. And so, Lord, I pray that we will glorify you in our disciple-making in Christ's name. Amen. So how, do, how does Jesus make disciples? Well, when you look at the passage, the first thing you see is that Jesus prayed, right? Prayer. These, these 12 men, as I said, were foundational to God's plan to change the world. Now, these first apostles would spend three and a half years or so with Jesus as disciples, learning to walk with him. 
It was, it was absolutely essential that Jesus chose the right men. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus prayed. He went up to the mountain alone to commune with God and to pray fervently. He prayed dependently, asking his father to help him. And later, he would tell his disciples that they were given to him by the father. Prayer is, is important. John said this. That listen to what... Um, Jesus said in the book of John 17, verse number six, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and you have kept your word. And so Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray for the choosing of the disciples when it is all said and done, the night before he is crucified, he says, you gave them to me. And so God answered his prayer. Luke, more than any of the other gospel writers, records the critical importance of prayer. Luke has an emphasis on prayer that none of the other gospels do. For example, did you know that Luke begins with prayer in the temple? It does. His second book, by the way, the book of Acts, begins with prayer in the upper room. Um. And it's the disciples praying at that point. In Luke and Acts, prayer precedes every major decision or crisis in the life of Jesus and the life of the early church. For example, here Jesus prayed before choosing the twelve. He, he prayed at his baptism when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed before he asked his disciples who do the crowds say that I am? While he was praying, he was transfigured. Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer. He taught that through prayer, believers, believers are able to persist and not lose heart. He prayed that, uh, he prayed, he told believers that they could pray to help resist temptation to sin he he prayed that um he taught the believers that um prayer moves the heart of god peter's denial did not turn into uh, apostasy look at this i want you to think about this what is the effect of prayer on people's lives this is what luke 22 verse 32 said it said, but I have prayed for you, talking to Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus looked at Peter. Peter said, and he told him, you're going to fall. You're going to fall away tonight. You're going to deny me. But I have prayed that that your faith will not fail. Yeah, you're going to stumble, but your faith will not fail. As a matter of fact, when you come back, you're going to strengthen the brothers. Now, if you never knew this, how would you think about the life of Peter? You would just think that that's the natural progression of his life. But here's a little insight showing us that our prayer has actual spiritual effects. Parents, do you pray for your children? 
Lord, please keep them from sin. Keep them from the stains of this world. Lord, will you take my child and turn his heart to you? My family member, whoever it is, turn their hearts. Help them to persevere during difficult times. And so you may never on this, in this life see what God answers prayer, but prayer is critical to the Christian life, to life in every major aspect. And so from Jesus, we learn of our own great need of prayer. Like Jesus, we need to meet with our Father on the mountain places of intercession. We need to pray for God's wisdom whenever we face momentous decisions. We need to ask for His will to be done. We need to pray for the work of the church as Jesus did. His example shows us the priority of prayer and carrying forward the global work of the gospel. Operation Christmas Child, right Dave? We need to be praying about that. His example shows us uh, that prayer comes first. If Jesus began his mission with prayer, how can we expect to uh, accomplish anything at all without prayer? He's Jesus Christ. We are never, don't miss this, we are never more like Jesus than when we get down on our knees and pray for people to go into the world and preach the gospel. This is not in my notes, but I'm going to say this anyway. One of the most exciting things uh, for me as a pastor is to sit here or to walk around and pray and then see God answer prayer. For example, one of my constant prayers to the Lord is, Lord, will you please call people from Providence Bible Church into gospel ministry? That is happening as we speak. I've had uh, somebody recently say, I think I'm going to go to seminary. That's God answering prayer. God answers prayer. Isn't that exciting? And so the first way, the first step in making disciples is that there's prayer. We pray, Jesus prayed. Jesus is our example, but there's more. Not only did Jesus pray, the Bible says that he chose. He said... uh, Um, it says, if you look at the verse, he says in verse number 12, in those days he went out to the mountain and prayed, continued all night in prayer, and when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. Now, in the New Testament, you may not be realize this, there are about 20 words that mean some variation of to choose or choosing in the New Testament. The one that most people know about is the word eklektos, which means to elect, okay? But there are others. This word here is uh, eklegomai, eklegomai. And it means to choose for yourself. And so there's the election where you choose somebody for a special purpose. This is um, to choose something for yourself, It's a very interesting word. Uh, Jesus repeatedly told his disciples that he chose them for himself. For example, John 15. Look at what he says. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit and that your fruit should abide and whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Doesn't that sound like Jesus saying, I chose you for myself? That's this word. Look at uh, John 15, verse number 19. If you were of the world, you would love, uh, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, 
I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Again, I chose you out of the world for myself, therefore the world hates you because you are like me. Make sense? But it does, it's not just the apostles that he chose for himself. He, he chose all disciples for himself one way or another. For example, in, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Okay, so let's, let's just, we'll set the record straight right now. If you're in Christ, Paul's saying you're the, you're the foolish. You're the weak, right? He goes on in the uh, next verse, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And so here is God choosing. And if you, if you continue reading, it's so that all the glory belongs to God. God chooses people out of this world who are lowly and despise nobodies, and he changes the world so that he might get glory. There's another verse, the same word being used, um, like Legomai, in Ephesians 1, verse number 4. Even as he chose us in him, so there it is for himself, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless for him. Now why? If you continue reading Ephesians 1, you get to verse number 14. Ultimately, it's to the praise of his glory. And what you're going to find many times that this word is used in the New Testament the ultimate result of this kind of choosing uh, for himself is so that he gets glory and praise. Let me give you one more verse. James, this is to put us all in our place, basically. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God not chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, uh, which he has promised to those who love him? And so James is saying God chooses the, the lowly, so that we can love him, and, and ultimately, again, he gets the glory. Now, why would I spend so much time on this word? Why would I spend so much time on this word? The reason is that Jesus chose carefully. And he chose carefully. Was he choosing carefully because he was looking for the most highly skilled, educated, rich, having it all together people in the world? No, the, re the verses we read say otherwise. Jesus chose ordinary people. An apostle is someone who's commissioned to carry a message or perform an official duty on someone else's behalf. And so the word comes from the Greek verb that means to send, apostello. Apostello, eventually the apostles would become Christ's ambassadors, his personal representatives after his ascension. They would speak and act in Jesus' name, preaching the good news, performing miracles, and writing New Testament Gospels and epistles. But first, he must choose fishermen. He must choose Essenes and zealots who live in, in uh, weird conditions, off by themselves and have weird things going on. They're just ordinary people. Remember that before they were apostles, they were disciples. They were among men and women who followed Jesus. But what distinguished them from the other disciples? If you, if you read, look, look back at verse number 13 one more time. It says this, And he called his disciples, so there's his disciples, and from them he chose twelve. You see that? 
And so he had many disciples. None of them were rich and famous, right? And out of the disciples, he called the 12. And what distinguished them? What distinguished these men from everybody else? Well, it wasn't that they were not well-educated or well-connected or well-funded. It wasn't any of that. On the contrary, people regarded them as unschooled, ordinary men. That's what Acts says about them. All of them were poor. All of them were poor. Even Levi had left his lucrative tax business behind. Now, it may seem rather surprising that these rather ordinary men became apostles, but they were called by God. And this is the secret to their success. What was important about them was not their credentials. What was important about them was their calling. The, the calling that they received by the sovereign choice of God. And the, the calling of the apostles was unique. They alone, of all the disciples, were called to represent Jesus Christ as official messengers. In effect, by ordaining these 12 men, God was establishing a new Israel. Just as the 12 sons of Jacob founded the Old Testament people of God, so also the apostles established the foundation for God's new covenant people in Christ, right? To this day, to this day, the church rests upon their ministry. Ephesians 2.20, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And since a building can only have one foundation, their ministry is non-repeatable. And that's why there are no apostles today. Down the street from the church I served at in Memphis was a little bitty church. And you know what the name of the church was? No lie. Philippians 5. Check how many chapters there are in Philippians. It's a Philippians 5 church. One day, uh, I saw a guy outside, so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to start talking to this person. Went and started talking to him. I said, are you the pastor? He said, he said no. He said, I'm the deacon. He said, my sister is the apostle and the pastor here. And um, I didn't get into an argument there. But there are many people who believe that there are still apostles today in their official function. There are not. They are foundational to the church. Once the foundation is laid, there's no need for another foundation. There are no other apostles. And that's what Jesus was calling these men to do. When God calls us, He calls us to faith in Jesus Christ. We have been called by name to serve our Lord in some particular ministry or ministries. We didn't choose our calling in the church. God chooses for us. This is a basic principle to all Christian ministry. Every single person here has ministry gifts. Did you give yourself those ministry gifts? No. Nobody here can raise their hand and say, you know, when I got saved, I thought to myself, I want the gift of preaching. And so I prayed, and one night Jesus came to me in a dream and said, Jared, I'm going to give you the gift of preaching. None of us do that. When I was a senior in high school, I told my friends, I will never have a job where I have to stand up in front of people and speak. 
right? I guarantee you many of you can say the same thing. It's, and, and the reason that we don't do that is because when we are saved, God gifts you to the church. God gifts you to Jesus Christ. And together, we function as a body. And we don't choose our gifts. God sovereignly ordained that you would have the gift and stitched you into a body so that you can use your ministry gifts so that He gets all the glory. And that's the wonderful thing about ministering in church, isn't it? When God calls us, He also provides the gifts. Uh, the mission of, of Jesus was not limited by the resources of the apostles that they already had in their possession. He would give them whatever they needed, including the Spirit, who's the real power for the work in the ministry. That is why the gifts that you have are called what? They're called spiritual gifts because they're given to you by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, as the apostles took the gospel to the world, they didn't rely upon their own abilities, but the enabling and equipping work of God. Ran across a quote by Oswald Chambers I want to share with you. And he said this, he said, All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on Him made possible the unique display of His power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced their dependent upon, dependence upon their natural abilities and resources. And isn't that so true? The somebodies that God uses are the somebodies who say, God, I'm going to renounce my dependence upon my abilities. I am only dependent upon you. And that's the kind of person God uses. Now listen, when you put your dependence and confidence in Christ alone and not in your own abilities, then the Spirit can do the real work of the ministry. If you are saved, then you are a disciple chosen by God to make other disciples. But before we get to that part, there's one more thing that we must talk about. Look at what else happens. Not only did Jesus pray, then ordinary people uh, become disciples, and the, the last thing that happens, or, or the next thing I should say, is that he changes them. Jesus prayed, chose his disciples, not just one special uh, person, but just ordinary people. Then he changes them. And in verses 14 to 16, Luke lists the apostles that Jesus chose. Now, if you look through the Bible, there are four lists of apostles. One's in Acts, then the rest are in, the, in uh, Luke uh, 6, Matthew 10, and Mark chapter number 3. In every list, guess who the first person is? Well, look at your list. It's the same person. Peter. Peter's the first person, right? He's, he's the leader. Peter is the spokesman for the group. And while he was the leader, self-confident, bold, impulsive, Jesus had things to teach him, didn't he? Peter needed to learn humility. He needed to learn it in a bad way. And many times with people that God uses in a tremendous way, there must be a tremendous breaking first. Now, Peter was the most self-confident, bold of all the disciples. We all know that. But God absolutely crushed him in order to use him. Listen to this. 
Matthew 26, 31, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. Now, who was absolutely sure that wasn't going to happen? Peter, right? Peter was sure this is not true. And so this is what he said, Matthew 26, 33, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And he was practically the biggest chicken of them all. Wasn't he? He needed to learn humility. And God broke his heart, the Bible says, when the cock crowed three times, right? And it says he ran away weeping. He needed to learn love. He was not a loving person. During the Passover meal, Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet. And Jesus himself, the one they rightly called the Lord, he took the role of the lowest slave in the house and he washed the dirty feet of all the disciples. According to Luke, about the, the same time that this happened, you know what the disciples were arguing about while Jesus is taking this lowly position? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples were in the midst of an argument about which one was the greatest. And most of them, when Jesus took that towel, wrapped it around himself, and took the water and, and bent down to wash the first person's feet, they probably stood there in stunned silence. But when the Lord came to Simon Peter, he said, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing, Lord? He went on to say, you will never wash my feet. What did Jesus tell him? I must wash your, your feet. You will have no part of me. And Jesus said what? Or Peter said, wash all of me. Jesus said, it's already been. He had to learn love, the true humility of love. Let me give you one more example in the life of Peter. John 21. In John 21, you find uh, the disciples, they're, they're out fishing. Peter said, I'm going fishing. Remember, he's heartbroken. Uh, he denied his Savior. He's humiliated. And so he goes fishing. Jesus comes to the shore, fixes the fire, puts some fish on there, has breakfast ready for him. They come up. And, and uh, what does Jesus say to him? Simon, do you love me? Right? What is Jesus doing? A lot of people will say he's drawing out love from Peter. And he probably is. But actually, he's taking a fisherman and he's teaching him how to be a shepherd. Because shepherds love the sheep. Isn't that what Jesus said? I love the sheep. And he's teaching Peter how to love. Well, there's other guys there. Mark's gospel tells us that, that Jesus called some brothers, James and John, Boanerges. You know what Boanerges means? Sons of thunder. James and John were rugged, hard-edged, ambitious, zealous, and explosive. It was these two men that when the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem from northern Galilee, 
They stopped through the Samaritan village and the Samaritan people, when they found out they were headed to Jerusalem, said, get out of our town. And it was James and John who asked Jesus, hey, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven? Remember that? Well, instead of taking lives, what did James eventually end up doing? He gave his own life up to Jesus. He was, James was the first martyr among the apostles. He didn't take up the sword. He didn't take up the spear. He took up his life and gave it for Jesus Christ. What about John the apostle? John was the last one. One of the historians say that he died in A.D. 98 as an old man. But what do we know him as? The apostle of love. You see, when Jesus calls someone to be his disciple, he changes them. He transforms them. Earlier in the week, it was so much fun. I love listening to people's testimonies. I was talking to some people and and uh, they were talking about their salvation. And they said, they said this, they said, I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior and nothing was different. And then I woke up the next morning and everything was different. New desires, love for the Word, and a desire to grow in Christ. Isn't that salvation? When God saves someone, when God chooses someone to be his disciple, when he calls them out of the world, they, they immediately, immediately they change. And they begin changing. I, I heard that um, later on in the week. Somebody was telling me about the salvation of one of their relatives. I heard the exact same thing. Heard the exact same thing. They said that the next morning they woke up this person woke up and he said he had changed. It, uh, it, was, it was amazing listening to that testimony. That was from a family member of another person who they've been praying for their salvation for years. Isn't that true? When God calls, God changes. This is the testimony of every single believer. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to what? Completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What is the day of Jesus Christ? The day He comes back. God is working on you. Slowly, slowly, slowly you're changing. And then one day, you'll change instantly. Won't that be a glorious day? And so He prays. And he chooses ordinary people to become his disciples. He changes them. And finally, when Jesus calls disciples, he commissions them and empowers them by his spirit to make disciples. As soon as Jesus called the apostles, he started showing them how to serve. Next week, we'll cover verses 12 to 26. And it shows Jesus ministering to the physical needs and teaching the word. And that's, that's the pattern. Now, Jesus ministered to physical needs because he's the miracle worker. He's the God-man. He's the one who can heal people instantly. We, on the other hand, are commissioned to preach the word, and we are also the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, aren't we? Our primary mission is to give the gospel. Secondarily, though, we can help people out with physical needs. 
Their, if you want to use the word internship, their internship lasted three and a half years. They spent their lives with him. And he trained them so that when he ascended to heaven, he could commission them. Three and a half years, they watched his life. Three and a half years, they saw him pray. Three and a half years, they saw people transformed. Three and a half years, they heard him teach. And he taught them and transformed them. So the point, to the point, that one day at his ascension, he could say this, all authority to me has been given on earth. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What is the main verb of that verse? Every missions conference you hear, there's the word go. It's not. Go is a participle. The imperative verb in the original language is make disciples. Make disciples. That's the verb. The verb is make disciples of all nations. How? When you're going, you, you tell people about Christ. Then when they convert, you baptize and you teach them to obey. Verse number uh, 20 says, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus here today? You're saying yes. Who saw him? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> if you did, we'll have to have a little conversation. How is Jesus with us? His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is with us. The Spirit of Christ empowering us to do ministry. That's exciting, isn't it? And so, I am with you always. I will always be with you till the end of this age. And then I will come back uh, visually and call you to heaven with me. And what is the command? The command is to make disciples. They were to make disciples, but were they just to make disciples? Oh, just in Jerusalem, maybe a little bit in Galilee. No, the answer is all over. In Acts 1.8, as he's ascending, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the end of the earth. Let me ask you a question. Did they go willingly? No, man. They loved the Christian fellowship. Where did they stay? They stayed in Jerusalem. Isn't that what you want to do? You want to stay with other Christians. How did they go out? They only went out when they were forced by persecution to go out, weren't they? That's when they spread. And the Bible says that when they went out being persecuted, that is when people started getting saved in these surrounding areas. Then eventually you get to the, the missions work of the apostles. Uh, the impact. What was the impact of these 12 men? What was the impact of these 12 men? Acts chapter 17 says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These are the same men who have turned the world upside down. The Roman world, the Roman Empire. They have changed it inside out. Were these special men? No, they were ordinary people. Were they the rich and famous? No, they were just ordinary Jewish men who were prayed for by the Son, chosen, changed, and commissioned to make disciples. And these disciples are made through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the most exciting part. The calling 
is the same for you and for me. We are called to make disciples. Jesus didn't say, you know, after you've learned the Roman road, and you can repeat it forwards and backwards, you, then you can go witness. Jesus didn't say, after you have a ton of Bible knowledge, and you've read the Bible through, and you've taken New Testament survey, and you've been to seminary, then you're to go make disciples. Jesus didn't say, wait until you have self-confidence. He didn't even say, you know what? You just be a really good person, and when you're smiling and you're happy at all times, somebody's finally going to go up and say, why are you so happy all the time? And then you get to say, I have Jesus, and that's your opportunity. No, the Bible says, make disciples. Make disciples wherever we are. Now listen, we are instruments. That's all we are. We're instruments. His Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. Isn't that great? That is why, I've told this story before. I've got to tell it again. My pastor in Memphis, he was saved by reading a sermon on some other topic in a publication called The Sword of the Lord. Some of you may have heard of that paper. He was in college. His grandma sent it to him. And he was getting ready to go home for Thanksgiving. And he said, if I don't read this thing, I know my grandma's going to ask me if I read it. And I don't want to lie to my grandma. He said he sat down and he was reading this sermon. I can't remember for life of me. That was 20-something years ago when he told me this, what the, name, what the sermon was on. But it wasn't on salvation at all. And he said there was a little phrase in the sermon that caused him to realize that he was not a believer and he got saved. The Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. You don't do it. I don't do it. We're simply, um, we're simply instruments. He, he does the heavy lifting. And so when we go and make disciples, depending upon the Spirit, God is pleased to glorify Himself through the making of more disciples. Isn't that wonderful? It's so exciting to see God work. But first, we must pray. I love the people that come in on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and pray with me. Because prayer is the power. Jesus prayed before ministry, critical times of ministry. We are to pray before ministry. Uh, for our part, the church, the church leadership, we make structures that help that along. Whether those structures are, for example, the discipleship triads that Mike Webb has set up and, and he's working on or coming up, if you look in your bulletins, we have a gas buy down coming up. And uh, the structures don't save. But you know what they are? Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. But vines need trellises. And so structures in a church are trellises that we set up in order for the vine work to go. For example, Lay Bible Institute, Monday nights. Do you know what that is? That's a trellis. That's a trellis with the goal that people are better at making disciples. That's the goal. I'm excited about things that we're working on right now for later this year and on into next summer. Opportunities for you to evangelize. Opportunities for you to make disciples. But you go on your own. For example, parents. I said this uh, a time or two recently. The, the, the biggest opportunity you have right now is under your own roof. A disciple 
is like his master and you are making disciples at this very moment. The question is, what kind of a disciple are you making? Honestly, that's the question. What kind of disciple are you making? One of the, the, the seminars I took uh, was on models of, of sanctification, models of Christian growth. And I had to write a paper for it. As I wrote the paper and I researched for the paper, I, I realized that one of the more frequent images in the New Testament for disciple making was that of a family. In other words, Jesus called Timothy, or Jesus, Paul called Timothy what? My true child in the faith. Why? Because Paul took Timothy along beside him and he didn't say, okay, at 9 a.m. we're going to have this class, 11 a.m. we're going to have this class, we'll take a lunch break, at 3 we're going to have this class. No, he said, follow me. And Timothy spent his time following Paul, hearing his teaching, yes, but watching Paul's life. That's discipleship. Parents, that's discipleship. Do we need classes? Yes, but classes alone isn't enough. The disciples saw Jesus every day for three and a half years. His life rubbed off on theirs, and the same is true for you. We need close Christian friendships to allow people to make disciples of others. So what is disciple making? What is it? Disciple making is a process of moving a person from unbelief to faith in Christ, then teaching and encouraging them in spiritual maturity in Jesus Christ. The beautiful thing about it all is that the Holy Spirit does it. You know, the, con the, the concept of disciple-making falls under the same category as other seeming biblical paradoxes. Let me ask you a question. Who wrote the Bible? God or man? The answer is yes. Right? That make, no, makes no sense. How can God be three in one? I don't know. He is. What makes us grow? Who makes us grow in sanctification? God or our own effort? The Bible says God does it and then it commands us to do it. How's it happen? This is the same thing. Making disciples is the same. Jesus prays to the Father, then choose ordinary people to become disciples. He changes them and commissions them to make disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is all a work of God, but God works through us. May the Lord glorify himself through our disciple-making efforts. Lord, I thank you so much for this short little passage packed with spiritual truth, packed with encouragement. We thank you that Jesus patterned how to make disciples we are, I, I ask, Lord, as I, as I ask all the time, that we will pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest fields. Lord, I pray that you will make us disciple-making disciples. I pray that you will glorify your, yourself through the workings of Providence Bible Church and, frankly, Lord, from the, the workings of other sister churches in Culpeper and around in our vicinity. Lord, may you be magnified and glorified above all. In his name, amen.